Hey everyone, and welcome to Theana Money, where we seek to help the good man leave an inheritance to his children's children. This is Jeremy Collins, the host of Theana Money. Many of us, especially men, and though I welcome any female listeners, I assume that most of my listeners are male, many of us like learning new things that give us practical ways to carry it out in our lives, and the sooner the better. Learning true things is great, but learning true things where I can go get my hands dirty putting them into practice is even better. Learning how a part of my computer works is cool, but buying that part and swapping it out for the old one in my desktop is a lot more fun than just knowing how this or that part works. Learning about Postmill is cool and all, but one thing that makes Postmill really cool is we get to actually go out into the world and make it become a reality. We get to use postmill as a verb, not just a noun. Theology gets more fun when you put legs on it. How Jesus was our penal substitutionary atonement is great, but it hits different when that makes you live differently and when it changes how you evangelize to make it more in line with scripture. Postmill is no different, and it has more practical implications more ways you can walk it out in real life than many other aspects of theology do. So last week we looked at how postmill, theonomy, and economics are all related to one another. But we did it more on the level of ideas, how exactly they are connected to each other. This week we are looking at that same relationship, but we are putting feet on it. We are looking at it practically, how it works in the real world. So if you haven't checked out last week's episode, it would probably be helpful to listen to it before you listen to this one, but since you're already here, it should be enough of a different subject for you to stay here right now and then come back and listen to last week's episode afterwards. But before we jump into all that, I want to ask you all to subscribe to the podcast feed if you've not already done so, give Theana Money a rating and a review, and tell your friends about the podcast. Also, go check out the Fill the Earth Network because Theana Money is one of several outward-focused ministries from Cruciform Bible Church and its Fill the Earth Network. And lastly, if you want some cool t-shirts about God's law, check out bonfire.com slash store slash Theana Money. I'll be posting links to that on social media. So back to this week's topic. Last week, we looked at how Postmill relates to theonomy and economics on the level of concepts. Now we're going to put some feet on that, giving some ideas as to how that works out in the real world. This podcast is not intended to be a rigorous step-by-step process that you must follow, but some ideas and some uh, general steps that you can keep in mind and modify and change and do whatever you need to do to apply these few ideas we're going to talk about to your real-life situation and making sure you're keeping it all subservient to scripture the entire time. 
So first, let's briefly walk through one of my favorite psalms, and this is going to really help us in this process of actually doing post-mill, not just talking about post-mill. Psalm 127. It's only a handful of verses long, like many of the songs of ascent, the 15 psalms following Psalm 119, and it will give us some ideas for how we can relate post-mill to theonomy and economics practically. It reads, Unless Yahweh builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless Yahweh watches the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early, that you sit out late, O you who eat the bread of painful labors. For in this manner he gives sleep to his beloved. Behold, children are an inheritance of Yahweh. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. They will not be ashamed when they speak with enemies in the gate. First, let's look at the first two verses, which do not get nearly as much attention as the last three do, but we'll be looking at all of them. Unless God builds the house and unless God watches the city, those who do the work building and those who do the work watching do their labor in vain. Unless God is with us in our endeavors, our work and our labor, labor and our toil is fruitless. House here can refer to building a literal physical house, or it can refer to a household or perhaps both. It refers to both things in various places in the Old Testament when this term is used. Either way, the point stands, although the latter, the one where we take this more as about a household, like the house of David, is more closely related to what Solomon discusses in the last few verses of the psalm, which could indicate this is what he wants us to read here in the first parts of the verse. I say Solomon there because I take the heading as of Solomon, not for Solomon, but from what I understand, the Hebrew could go either way. Good brothers in Christ have been on both sides of it. Uh, if it means for Solomon, it could mean that maybe David or someone else is the author and dedicated it to Solomon instead of he himself being the author. But all of that is not related to how we apply Psalm 127 to our lives. Whether Solomon wrote it or someone else wrote it and dedicated it to Solomon, the ultimate author is still the Holy Spirit. So verse 2 doesn't mean that we should be lazy because God gives to his beloved even in his sleep. It is rather more teaching balance. Don't be excessive in your work as if it all rode upon you and God isn't even in the picture, which is more what these verses are talking about. But on the flip side, what they don't mention explicitly but rather is known from other passages is to not be lazy either. Plumer, in his commentary on Psalms, writes, Those do therefore sadly sin against God, who ascribe their success or prosperity to human wit, power, or perseverance. Verses 1 to 3. Man is a worm. Man is a fool. Man is a sinner. Nor do those less err who claim to rely on God and yet neglect or slight the means he has ordained for our success. Verses 1 and 2. The true Christian works as if he believed not, and believes as if he wrought not. This applies to post-mill because we need to remember that though we are working, and we had better be working hard to build God's kingdom, God is the one who does the work. 
We labor and toil and build and take dominion, but only if the Lord wills our efforts to be successful in whichever particular endeavor to which we set our hands. God is sovereign in it, so we trust in him. The second verse can also teach us to not try to do all of this work supposedly in the name of expanding God's kingdom, but doing it all in our own effort without really considering God in the matter, just doing what we think or know will further his kingdom without considering if that is the area he wants us in, instead just thinking about ourselves even as we do work supposedly for his name. Are we doing all of the things I will list shortly in this episode without considering God in the matter? Just giving him lip service while our hearts are far from him like the Pharisees did? That is something I think about as I do different ministry endeavors, both this podcast and others. And how if I am not spending much time in prayer, washing those endeavors in prayer, then am I really doing it for God and by his power? or for myself and by my power with a veneer of being for God over the top of it. That's something that I have to think about and answer for myself and all of you, my listeners, need to do for your own selves as well. Going on to the next verse, it says that children are an inheritance and a reward from God. They are an inheritance and a reward from him. Children are a gift from God not a burden, not something to be looked down upon like so much of our culture these days, especially as it relates to feminism, how they see children. Although children can be a burden and the exact opposite of an inheritance and a reward, and we will see that when we dig a bit further into this psalm. Verse 4 says that children are like arrows in the hands of a warrior. A warrior needs his weapons for battle. He may be able to fight well with his hands, but he should not go to war empty-handed when his enemies are equipped with sword and spear and bow and arrow. His weapons are necessary in his battle. As believers, we are in a war for the cosmos and our children, specifically godly children who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ and who know the word of God. They are some of our deadliest weapons against the enemy. Note that it says the children of one's youth. Now, some disagree with me. I think this is not youthful children, but the children one had in his youth. First of all, it literally says here in the LSB, the children of one's youth. Now, maybe the Hebrew is a bit vague and I know virtually no biblical Hebrew, but even if that is the case, I think we can cross-reference this with Proverbs 5.18. Solomon tells us there to be glad in the wife of your youth. Solomon doesn't mean there that what he's about to say only applies to young people, as if only young married men were the people he was writing to in Proverbs 5. But he was meaning the wife you married in your youth and are still married to now. He means the wife you married when you were 20 and are still married to now that you are 30 or 40 or 50 or 100 if the Lord grants you that many years. Taking that back to the current verse, it is at least possible, but I think probable, that this means that the children you had in your youth, now that you are middle-aged or elderly, are like arrows in your hands. As long as you raise them in the Lord, 
and the Lord chose them from and the Lord chose them among his elect. As long as you raise them in the Lord and the Lord chose them as his elect. But why are they such a blessing and like weapons in a warrior's hands? Why, as the first part of verse 5 reads, is the man who fills his quiver with them blessed? We see that in the rest of verse 5. The man who does this will not be ashamed when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. The gate in the ancient Near East was the equivalent of our courts today. That was where cases were held and judicial matters were settled by witnesses and the city elders. When this man speaks with his enemies in the gate, presumably a good man speaking with those falsely accusing him in the ancient equivalent of our modern court systems, his children will be there to support him in such disputes. This implies grown children. No matter how cute your little boy or little girl might be, their testimony in court is not viewed like an adult's because there's a difference between a four-year-old and a 24-year-old. Now here is where we get to how children can be a burden and distress rather than a blessing. Children that you raised poorly and who turned away from God and also turned away from common sense are unlikely to support and defend you in your disputes, even if you are an innocent party being falsely accused by slanderers. But your children that you raise in the discipline and instruction of the Lord your children to whom God has granted repentance and mature faith, they are likely to do that to support you. These are the children who are likely to carry on the Christian faith to your grandchildren and, Lord willing, see your flaws as a parent, improve upon them, and be a better parent to your grandchildren than you were to them. A large number of godly children, of honorable children, are like arrows in the hands of a warrior. They are a blessing and inheritance from God. However, a large number of ungodly, rebellious, and wicked children, that is a burden and a pain. The first group, the godly children, require not only the providence and blessing of God, but a lot of work on your part as a parent. Such children require a lot of time playing with them, reading scripture to them, teaching scripture to them, Praying with them, reading fiction to them, reading nonfiction to them, teaching them all sorts of different things, and just plain being with them, spending a lot of time with them, being with them rather than doing whatever you want to do off on your own. But such children are arrows that you fire at the ungodly world, or maybe nuclear missiles that you fire at the ungodly world is a good way to put it in modern vernacular. Such children, when they are grown adults, are what one of my professors when I was in college called little m monsters. What did he mean by that? First, let's look at what he did not mean. Big M monsters or capital M monsters would be someone who knows all of the arguments, who knows all of the apologetic arguments and all the scripture citations and all the science and logic and philosophical arguments, but who is the embodiment of a condescending cage stage jerk. He might win every debate with an unbeliever, but he's so rude in nearly every encounter that even other believers don't want to be part of the conversation. Opposed to that, little m monsters are Christians who know all that stuff, 
but who also know how to not be a condescending jerk and be respectful, even caring and compassionate. While they dismantled the unbeliever's worldview from his epistemology up before the person even realizes what is happening. These Christians embody 1 Peter 3, 8-16. You want your children to be the latter, not the former. At this point, you might be thinking that this doesn't sound like practical steps at all. It sounds more like the theology of post-mill. How does Psalm 127 and that explanation of it give us practical steps? This is because having children and raising them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord so that they are blessings in the Psalm 127 sense, not burdens and curses in the sons of Eli sense, is one of the most basic, important, and normative ways by which Christians advance the kingdom of God in this world and actually do post-mill. Not just talk about post-mill, but do it. I'm probably making an entirely new way that post-mill is used in English grammar right now by saying do post-mill, but maybe it'll catch on. This is basic and normative because having children is something that most people do. If you are a Christian, you are probably already married or will marry at some point. And unless you or your spouse have some serious medical issues, and if you do, then this is no condemnation on you. And I hope your local church supports you through this great trial. And I'll be praying that if any of my listeners are going through things like that, that God helps you through that. But if you are among the vast majority of believers, you will have children. It is normal and basic and common to human existence. It is also important because this advances the kingdom of God long term like few other things do. So raise your children well in scripture. This is where we're getting to more of the list of things you can do to advance post-mill in the world. Not advance post-mill like get more people to be post-mill. That's more on the theology of post-mill side and arguments and stuff. This is advanced post-mill, like advance the kingdom of God, actually do post-mill. So first, raise your children well in scripture. Wash them in the water of the word of God. Teach them how to use the sword of the Holy Spirit. Read scripture with them. Memorize scripture with them. Teach them how to properly interpret scripture, that is, good hermeneutics. Teach them what bad interpretation of scripture looks like. Teach them what heresy looks like. Teach them the difference between exegesis and eisegesis. Those shouldn't be terms that only Bible college students know and use. If you don't know, I'm not shaming you by saying that. There are others that probably should have taught you those things by now. But you can learn those terms and teach them to others. Exegesis is getting your interpretation out of scripture. That is, what scripture means with its words. Eisegesis is putting your interpretation into scripture. That is, getting out of scripture what you put into it. In other words, getting out of scripture whatever you want, regardless of what the Bible actually says. Make sure your children know how to handle the word so that they don't do that. And have them memorize so much scripture that if they grow up and leave the faith, what they remember of the Bible will be a testament against them as it repeatedly comes to their memory and perhaps the Holy Spirit uses that to stop their rebellion and bring them to obedience and faith. So all that was point one with like a thousand subpoints to it. Second thing, raise your children well and being well educated. This goes for both your girls and your boys. 
Don't just think that your daughters are going to be mothers. They don't need to be well-educated. They're the ones actually doing the big stuff of being with the next generation 24-7 while the father, your son-in-law, or your son with your daughter-in-law is away for half the day earning the money. That way they don't starve to death. Make sure your sons and daughters are well-educated. Have them consume good content, whether fiction or nonfiction or, dare I say, movies and maybe even the occasional video game. Teach them how to do good analysis of what they consume so that when they come across something bad, they know why it's bad and don't fall for it or have to ask you what's wrong with it. If your kids like manga, like I hope my future children will like manga, like I love manga, then help them develop skills to pick apart worldview issues in it. Do this with everything, not just manga. I'm just giving this as an example. When is this manga displaying things in line with a Christian worldview, like sacrifice for the sake of others? When is it displaying things antithetical to a Christian worldview? Perhaps something from Shintoism or Buddhism or some other aspect of Japanese culture that's not in line with Christianity. Uh, I'm, I'm a big manga fan, so... I could go on and on about different ways that Itachi and Naruto in some ways embodies the Christian worldview and Christian sacrifice and in other ways is completely antithetical to it. Teach your kids how to do stuff like that when they're reading or watching TV or stuff like that. Educate them well so that they can pick out logical fallacies or manipulation or abuse of statistics, a topic I plan to cover in future episodes, and other things like how to think for themselves and how to understand good regular, good rhetoric and argumentation and things like that. Also, raise your children well in a good work ethic. Teach them how to work hard and not give up the moment they come across a blocker or difficulty or start to feel tired or sick. Working at a church camp for several summers when I was in high school and college taught me how to work until I feel like I'm about to pass out probably because I literally was about to pass out from exhaustion, then shake it off and keep working for several more hours. I would love for my future sons to work at a church camp where they get similar experiences to the ones I had, being on the verge of passing out from so many long days in a row and all, all of it. It was good learning experience for me and teaching me a good work ethic, especially if they get to work on maintenance at the camp and learn things I could never teach them by just repairing a car or fixing a house. There are a lot more maintenance and repairs needed at a church camp than there are on a house and a car. In our culture of laziness and entitlement, a work ethic like that will get someone a long way. And in comparison to other people these days, it may even pay off more than it used to. Raise your children well in business. Teach them good economics and managerial skills and talents. Similar to the point above, this will help them get further in life when others around them are lazy or never developed these skills when they were young so that they have to learn them on the job, which is more difficult because messing up is part of learning such things and messing up with you as their parent has much less consequences than messing up with their boss at their job. So have children and raise them in such things. Teach your children the gospel until they know it better than most Bible college students, but don't beat them over the head with it and thus exasperate them. Don't provoke your children to wrath by how you raise them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. 
because then you are violating one of God's commands in the name of keeping another one and in reality not doing either one. This is one thing that I think about how I'll do that with my children and not mess up. I know I'm going to mess up at times and hopefully godly men older than me will tell me what to do to not mess up or let me know when I am messing up so I can change it sooner rather than later. And this will make real change in the world. This is why this is doing post-mill. Unbelievers aren't having kids. With the growth of the LGBTQ movement and abortion, their reproduction rates are dropping. Homosexuals can't have children. The heterosexuals are murdering them by abortion and abortifacient contraception or not conceiving to begin with via non-abortifacient contraception. Because of these things and the general culture against children, Americans who have lived in the nation for more than a couple of generations are below the replacement levels. In other words, our birth rate is so low as a nation that we are only still growing in population because the baby boomers are still alive and we have immigrants each year and many immigrants tend to be above the birth rate replacement level for a generation or two before our culture infects them as well. Once the baby boomers begin passing in large numbers, immigration may not be able to offset it and our population will actually start shrinking. If immigration also decreases, our nation is doomed. This is where Christians can shine. Have children and raise them in the faith. Right now, Christians are having more children than the unbelievers, but so many of them are leaving the faith when they're teenagers and adults. Have children and raise them in the faith. Teach them scripture. Educate them well. Teach them apologetics. Teach them good business and economic and life skills. Teach them good work ethics. If Christians are faithful in this, America could be a primarily Christian nation in two or three generations. If Christians don't adopt the view of children our culture has, but instead embraces children and actually raises them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, so Lord willing, many fewer of them will leave the faith, then in a couple of generations, the United States could be mostly Christians and Muslims since Muslims are also having a lot of children. But even that is good news because Muslims are probably the easiest people group to evangelize. DM me if you want some help or advice on evangelizing Muslims. Trust me, it's way more fun and way easier to get to the gospel with a Muslim than with an atheist or other people groups. And yes, I really use the word fun there. I've had several conversations with Muslims about the gospel, want to have a lot more because it's actually really fun, I think. So the secular culture that is prominent in America is leading to people who are not having many children well below replacement level. But other nonsense they have embraced is hindering the children they actually do have. This is tragic because children are being hurt by their parents' rejection of and rebellion against God, but it just makes it even easier for Christians to rise to the top and, Lord willing, evangelize those children who were hindered by their parents. When most of the other people their age have all sorts of educational issues or poor work ethics because of secular American culture. For example, many children are having speech issues because of masks. Young children need to actually be able to see adults' lips move to learn how to talk properly. And these cloth masks that people think actually do something 
are making it difficult for their children to learn how to talk. We are only two years into this and are already seeing issues with young children struggling with speech. I'm honestly kind of surprised we're already seeing issues so soon into it. What more issues will we see five or ten years down the line when those children are entering middle and high school? What long-term damage will it cause children that were delayed in learning how to talk and properly pronounce words? When our children grow up, they might stand out from and outshine those around them just by knowing how to talk clearly, enunciate properly, and yes, thank you everyone saying, yes, you also need to learn how to enunciate better, Jeremy, I'm working on it. Oh, and also speak with confidence. So when they can talk clearly, enunciate better than I can, and somehow I have a podcast that's doing well, that's great. That's totally all God, not me. And when they can also speak with confidence, they're going to outshine those around them. Then there's also public school, which doesn't give good education. America spends more money on our public education than other nations where children do better on standardized tests than American kids do. Find a good Christian private school, or better yet, homeschool your children and provide them with an education that will leave them better educated when they graduate high school than most people are when they graduate college. Honestly, in the United States these days, that probably really isn't that high of a standard to shoot for. Another practical step to actually do post-mill in the real world is to leave a legacy. I like this one because it relates to the verse I reference at the start of every episode. A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. Proverbs 14.22 Leave a legacy for your children and grandchildren financially and material by the money and goods you leave behind after you die. Don't blow it all on extravagant vacations after you retire as young as you possibly can. But having a legacy is more than just leaving money to your kids. It is leaving skills and knowledge and the ability to do things and most importantly, a faith instilled into your family for generations to come by teaching them scripture and doing all the other things I said to do with children and teach them a bit ago. And leaving this spiritual legacy can go way beyond just your children. There are all sorts of things you can do that will leave that sort of legacy. For me, Theana money might be just such an avenue. So it would be Christian blogs or YouTube channels or anything else, social media pages, things like that. But more important than any of those, way more important than those, is instilling the faith into those younger than you at your local church, even if you're not an elder there. Older men are to teach younger men, and older women are to teach younger women. And that goes for all older believers who are mature in their faith, not just pastors. If your elders believe you are qualified to the task, then maybe you can teach a Sunday school class or counsel people going through various issues. Uh, after all, 2 Corinthians 1, Paul talks about being comforted in, in his affliction, so that way he would be able to comfort others in their afflictions. If you've gone through a difficult time and you are mature in your faith and you know scripture well, then you're probably great for the task of counseling others going through a similar situation. That's why Christianity is the exact opposite of intersectionality. We say difficult times doesn't mean that other people owe you stuff. Difficult times means now you can serve other people better. Opposite of intersectionality. But I go on with my list. 
Uh, you can have others from your church over your house to confess sin to each other and hold each other accountable in sanctification. Or you can talk about scripture or theology and all kinds of other things together. And you can do any God-honoring thing believers can do when they meet together in your house throughout the week, not just on Sunday. That also leaves a legacy. But don't forget your first legacy with your children and grandchildren in these things. Climb as high as you can up the mountain and make it so that your kids can climb from where you left off and get higher than you could. This isn't about you. This is about God's glory and the long-term goal of furthering his kingdom in the world. So if quitting a couple non-essential things might hinder your march, but make your children be able to march further and higher, then in the long run, it is probably worth it beyond comparison. Then there are all sorts of other things that further post-mill in this world, such as being good at your job. Do your service and make your good products because that honors your father, and not doing so may blaspheme his name as unbelievers could use it as another reason why Christians are always bad at what they do. For example, if there are five butcher shops in your area, and you can put anything in here, I'm just randomly choosing butcher shops, and two of those five are way better than the others, there's no question or comparison. These two are way better than those other three. And those two are owned by Christians and the other three aren't. What does that say about the faith? People in your area might just get this idea that being a Christian makes you a better butcher just because the two really great butcher shops are owned by Christians and the other three that are all right or maybe kind of not great are owned by non-Christians. You can honor the name of God in this world simply by having better cuts of meat than your competitors or better service than your competitors, or by being a better employee than your unbelieving co-workers. You can advance post-mill and theonomy in the world by voting for Christians when it comes to elections. Washington, D.C. is so corrupt that this might be difficult with federal elections, but start local. If there aren't any to vote for, then run yourself or help one of your friends, someone in your local church or another solid local church in your area, help them to run and support them in it. Lastly, and probably the second most important, behind only having a healthy household with children raised in the faith, is evangelism of those outside your immediate family, whether extended family or friends or strangers you meet. Postmill happens as the gospel goes forth and the Great Commission is successful, so evangelism, first of your children and second of everyone else you meet, is the most important way to do that. And then also this relates to theonomy and economics because of what I talked about in last week's episode and then the episode two weeks before then. How post-mill is related to theonomy and economics because as the world becomes more Christianized, it's going to naturally become more theonomized. Let's go with theonomized, making up that word right now. The world's going to naturally grow more towards theonomy as the world becomes more Christianized, as the Great Commission is successful and the world population becomes more and more Christian by percentage. And that will change the economics because economics will be in line with scripture, not economics antithetical to scripture like we see in many non-Christian nations today and like we are increasingly seeing in America. Didn't just start a year ago in America with non-Christian economics, it started a lot longer before then. And there are all kinds of other things I could cover in this episode, but 
I'm already over my normal length of time. So I want to cap it off by saying to be creative and let scripture be your guide. As it comes to doing things, you try to further God's kingdom and actually do post mill. And note how most, if not all of the things I listed in this episode as things that advance the kingdom and actually accomplish post mill in the world are just normal things that all Christians should do. Postmo doesn't call us to do crazy things for God that Christians with us other eschatologies aren't doing. It calls us to do things that Christians with any eschatology, all Christians, should already be doing. Obey Psalm 127. Obey the Great Commission. Kill your sin. Put off sin and put on righteousness and either be discipled by more mature Christians or be discipling less mature Christians and watch post-mill happen in real life. The progress might be so slow that you don't really see it, but that is because we are thinking in terms of centuries and millennia, not months and years. That was this week's episode of Theana Money. As we go, I want to remind everyone that the law of the Lord is perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, and true. So go apply that law in light of the gospel of Christ's atoning death and resurrection to every area of life. Grace and peace, friends. Oh, you say.